0: Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, the complicated relationship between journalists and their sources. We're going to dive into a case that has gotten some amount of attention in Israel, actually a lot of attention, but less so in the United States. And I think it raises some important issues about how journalists approach people who leak them information or people who give them information and what their obligations are to these people going forward. In 2005 to 2007, there was a woman who was working as the personal assistant for the chief of staff to the commander who oversees Jerusalem and the West Bank among other areas. As part of her job, she saw she saw a lot of information about how Israel was operating in the occupied territory and thought that the portrayal of the Israeli occupation was not necessarily what she was reading in the press. So, She took some of the documents and gave them to a reporter for Haaretz, the Israeli newspaper. So the reporter wrote a series of stories uh, based on the documents, one of which was about how the IDF had authorized the killing of Palestinian fugitives, even when they could have been arrested. The leaker, she was sentenced to three and a half years in prison. The journalist was required to turn over the documents and got four months of community service. The reason this is interesting now is that in December of last year, of 2018, a court in Tel Aviv ruled that the newspaper, again Haaretz, and the reporter, whose name is Yuri Blau, didn't exercise proper caution in protecting the source who had given Blau the information. What makes this so fascinating is that the person who turned these documents over to the Haaretz reporter is a woman named Anna Kam, who is here with us today. Welcome. Thank you. Anna has written an incredibly compelling piece for CJR, which you can read on our website, about this whole chain of events. And what I think is so important about this conversation is that it, it's a rare chance for journalists to listen to somebody who is, was a source of theirs, who ends up getting burned because they acted as, as a source, ends up going to jail. And now Annette says, basically, knowing what she knows now, she would never do this again um and it's and it's chilling um to think about what that means for reporters who depend on sources for information so this all of this stuff happened when you were twenty two um uh,
1: yeah, so I grew up in a troubled city um for a Zionist but left leaning family mm-hmm. um my parents were Haaretz subscribers for decades.
0: Did you read the paper?
1: Yeah, I knew Uri's name as a reader. That was one of the reasons I approached him with the documents, because uh-huh. I knew his work. I served at the IDF between 2005-2007. Um, I between ages 18 and 20.
0: You had already put these documents on a USB drive, yeah?
1: Yeah, I, I took them on a CD okay. and which I didn't do anything with until like a year later. Right,
0: and was this always on your mind? Like, was it always on your mind? Like, I have this thing, what should I do with it? For instance, did you ever think about just writing this yourself?
1: No, because I didn't have, I think, enough understanding of the wider situation and the wider context Mm -hmm. of the things. and I wanted to distance myself from it. Right. So I didn't want to publish it myself because then it would be clear I took the documents. Yeah. I just, you know, trusted them to do whatever is right with the information.
0: You thought it was an important story.
1: Uh, I thought there were many important stories there. Yeah. I, and I trusted them to take the m- most important stuff out of it. Um, there were some many junk documents yeah. there. But, you know, Uri had been working as an investigative journalist for more than 15 years. He had way more experience than I had. Uh So, you know, I just trusted him to do what's right with it.
0: So it's interesting, you were saying um, from the time you left the IDF until um, this stuff happened, you were working as a media reporter, Uh, writing about what?
1: um, So media reporters, even though the Israeli media market is relatively small, there are still Many interesting things there, like the intersections between regulators, publishers, network owners, consumers. You know, the 2008 crisis hit the um, advertising market real Mm -hmm. bad. So, Mm -hmm. you know, the media obviously suffered. And as part of being a media reporter, I covered the... um, union battle within Haaretz. Mm-hmm. And this is how I met Ori.
0: And that led um, then to your decision to turn over these documents to him. How, 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 how long was this negotiating process with him about all this? Or, and did you talk about <laughs> of what your expectation of, of uh, what you, what you expected them to do to protect your anonymity?
1: Well, the negotiation process took about a minute uh, (laughs) because I was...
0: That's a minute you would like to have back.
1: I was a very inexperienced source. Mm -hmm. So part of the arguments uh, in my lawsuit against Haaretz is, you know, the the differences between Uri's experience as a reporter and my non-experience as a source. So I didn't even know what to ask. Mm -hmm. I gave him the flash drive. Uh, it was while we were riding from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He gave me a ride. It was a Friday afternoon. We both went to our parents for the weekend. I gave it to Uri. I told him, I think there are some interesting stuff here for you. Mm-hmm. Please don't tell anyone you got it from me, mm-hmm. especially not to your editors in Haaretz, because I work with them as a media reporter. They yeah. know me. Yeah. And he called me a few days later. He said, this is amazing. That's about it. We met maybe another one or two times to talk about the story, he asked for some clarifications, um, and that's it. And on November 2008, the big assassination story uh, was published, but there were a few others yeah. afterwards.
0: The point that you just made is so important because you're saying that, um, and this is something that the court backed you up on, which is um, your, the obligation in terms of protecting a source is on the... Journalist, because sources obviously sometimes don't know and and what was interesting about this is that in in the realm of people who leak information to the press, you were actually much more informed than the average person would be because you actually worked as a reporter and you actually worked as a media reporter, and the judge still said the the, the journalists that you worked with didn't offer nearly as much protection for you
1: so yeah and Even though I had the advantage of being a journalist myself and being a media reporter, I never dealt with something as important as classified national security documents. Mm -hmm. And God forbid I would disclose a source's identity. The worst thing that can happen is that, you know, they get fired. Mm -hmm. I went to prison for more than two years. Yeah. In,
0: in your lawsuit, you you argue that they um, they didn't do nearly enough to protect you, and the piece that you have in CGR details this terrifying series of conversations you had with security officials where they basically sat you down and basically interrogated you, and you being a 22-year-old were— scared out of your mind, and um, ended up giving them what they asked for. You gave them your computer, you told them they could search your apartment, right?
1: I gave them more than what they asked for because what they asked for was based on what they thought I had, Mm -hmm. which was what Uri gave them.
0: Okay, so let's pause on that point. Do you believe that, that Uri or the newspaper gave them your name?
1: The Shabak, the Israel Security Services, admitted to court that they had used the documents they got from Uri in order to find the source. Mm -hmm. So what Uri did, uh, he gave back to the Shabak 49 documents Mm -hmm. out of the more than 1,500 they got from me. Mm -hmm. And it was very clear out of these documents who could be the person who would have access to all of them. Right. I think he did it in order not to jeopardize other sources he had. Right. Because... Because he
0: only gave them stuff that you gave him, not that anybody else gave him.
1: Exactly. Even though it wasn't specified in the agreement that he and Haaretz signed with the Shabak, he decided on his own mind to give them back only documents he got from me and thus pointing at me. And, And another important thing, I was... At no point in the loop of this agreement. That's I, what I was going to ask.
0: So, so when you started getting contacted by these these large men, <laughs> <laughs> um, did you call your Uri and say like, "Hey, these guys are here. What do I do? What are you doing? What What I, was the conversation between the two of you?"
1: So I called a mutual friend we had and I asked him, "Do you know where Uri is?" And he told me, "Yeah, he's traveling with his girlfriend in China." his incommunicado. Mm-hmm. I'm like, so I just went to the meeting at the Shabak offices because, well, like I wrote there, I was too curious uh, not to go. Mm-hmm. And I never thought I needed a lawyer. I never thought I need someone to go with me because, like I said, I wasn't even sure it was about that.
0: Did you, did you think that he used the documents effectively and that the stories resonated?
1: Um, the stories unfortunately didn't resonate enough, um, but that's because of the situation in Israel. No one really cares about how bad the occupation of the West Bank is. Right, right. And Haaretz, um, although it's a very acclaimed, respectful newspaper, it doesn't have many subscribers, it doesn't have many readers. So how long
0: after those uh, interrogations did, did the indictment come?
1: So um, after the conversation at the Shabak offices, I was taken to a formal interrogation at the police offices, and because I just gave everything away and I fully cooperated, they said they don't think I need uh, to go to, to be fully arrested, and they sent me to house arrest at my parents' house for five days. and. And then the house arrest was extended for a few more weeks. And the indictment was filed on January of 2010. All of this happened under a very heavy gag order.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Ultimately, you were indicted and charged with two counts of espionage, convicted in both as part of this plea deal. Uh, You were sentenced to four years and six months in prison, uh, which was ultimately reduced by a year on appeal and then you served two years and two months. Um, You make a point in your piece saying that this was a punishment that was unprecedented in in its length. You clearly felt betrayed. And how long did it take you to decide that you were going to essentially sort of turn the tables and sue Haaretz for the way they treated you?
1: I found out about the agreement uh, between Haaretz and the Shabak only the phase of discovery during my criminal trial Mm -hmm. and at that point I was completely shocked at that point I realized they just gave me away and Mm -hmm. I think at that point my family and I decided that we need some sort of compensation or you know help from them and at first, I tried to get help from them, but they never offered anything useful. They never even
0: responded to your, you, you, you. You write that you sent a letter to the newspaper's publisher who never wrote Yeah. Back.
1: So, um, you know, before you go to court, you need to show you exhausted, all wow. other means. So, yeah, we tried contacting Mr. Shoken, how it's publisher. He never responded. And... N- like it's been so many years, and you know, I still n- not only in my own personal experience never really overcame everything that happened to me, but you know, my name in Israel is still a synonym for a traitor.
0: Uh huh. Um, it? Cha- what has it made you think about how journalism works?
1: I still want to be a journalist. Um, it should
0: be mentioned that you went to the <laughs> Columbia Journalism School after all of this.
1: Yeah, I, I came here for a fresh start. I just really needed to go as far from Israel as possible. And, I you know, I dreamt of uh, the J-School for years, and this was just the right opportunity to do so. But I think that um, what I learned is, first, that no one is immune to such a thing, because, you know, Haaretz is, like I said, a highly respected outlet. And if it happened to them... It can happen to anyone else. And I don't think they had bad intentions. They just really didn't care. And, you know, just like malpractice can happen even to the best surgeon, no one is immune. So, But do you
0: think um, this is, because this is really the crux of, like, whether there is a, whether this was just a, a series of personally bad decisions on the part of this particular reporter, or... Whether there is a sort of bigger institutional problem where for, for reasons of, you know, lack of resources in newsrooms or lack of dependence on official sources and official channels, that this kind of danger exists in a lot of places, that it's beyond just the actions of an individual reporter. Or do you have more faith in that?
1: Um, I do have more faith in that. Uh, I think. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think in this case, um, as the court agreed with what we said, lots of what happened was um, Uri's actions uh-huh. and Uri's decisions. T- but Uri was a accomp- was accompanied by a lawyer, and Uri had editors behind him. Uri's lawyer told him not to tell me about the agreement because it may be considered an obstruction of justice, an obstruction of investigation, or something like that. Haaretz did wrong by not telling me about this agreement because Mm. it was about me. They gave away documents that they got from me, and they signed this agreement behind my back without telling me. And And you're the
0: person who took the risk.
1: And I'm the person who took the risk. And I think that many people wouldn't want... um, criminals to match their stories. And in a way, Uri and I were both criminals. I mean, <laughs> we were both um, tried and convicted of, you know, holding documents we weren't allowed to. I was also um, convicted in taking them from from the IDF um, unauthorized. But But I think there's a consensus in every democracy that journalists sometimes break the law by holding information and documents that they're not allowed to, but we accept it. And there's this gray zone of unauthorized, sometimes illegal actions that we accept as necessary for free press, for free speech, and for, you know, functioning democracy.
0: Sometimes those people are heroes. Sometimes. (laughs) Um, I mean, the release of the Pentagon Papers is is now deemed a heroic move. And also, um, the judge wrote, um, "Keeping the confidentiality of the information sources is the very essence of free press. It is, and damaging it means hurting free speech. That's what the judge wrote in ruling for you in this case. Um, so, you graduated from the journalism school last year. Last year, uh, and you've uh, what have you been doing since?
1: I'm. I currently work." part-time for a small Israeli website. I freelance a little for some Israeli outlets. The fallout, the consequences of what happened to me more than 10 years ago is still felt in the most unexpected places. You know, I graduated from Columbia Journalism School, the best in its field, and I still have trouble finding jobs because I can't work because I have a criminal record from 10 years ago. Mm. This thing keeps walking with me
0: um it should be noted that Haaretz has appealed this um dis- judge's decision, correct?
1: Yeah, uh, but what what Haaretz said uh in their, you know, response for uh for this ruling is about the chilling effect that mm-hmm. this ruling might have.
0: The argument is that it will it, it, will, it will just it will dampen journalism. And is then, that the that's the argument? Uh,
1: they will say that um it will have a chilling effect because because journalists will fear taking information from sources because they think that if the sources will be exposed then the jo- the journalist will be exposed to um, lawsuits from the source and if journalists fear that they will be sued by sources that were exposed. Well, it's just don't expose your sources. It's that simple.
0: The the um, the Harrits story about the judge's ruling, which which I think you in your piece described as relatively fair in the way that they portrayed it. Yeah. Um, the statement that they that they put in was quote a newspaper and reporter cannot save the source from herself. Um, I mean that sort of. And by the way, we asked Harrits to. If they wanted to respond to the piece that you wrote, and they didn't, they declined to get back to us on it. Um, it doesn't sound like they have taken a lot of a lot of introspection, or at least or at least in a public way, about w- how what what they c- could have or should have done differently. Have you heard anything else from people you know there or others about whether there's actually been more thoughtful look at this on their part?
1: In in almost all cases. um there's an inherent inequality between the source and the reporter or, more important, between the source and the outlet because the outlet has, you know, lawyers on retainer and they have editors who are experienced and and that have seen many things and the source will never have this kind of system behind him mm-hmm. and in that's why... Outlets, newspapers, networks must save the source from himself because they know better. Yeah, they should know better.
0: Yeah, and it's great to have you. Thank you. I think you're gonna. Um, I think your story will will open a lot of reporters' eyes um, and make them think again, which is the point of this. So, thanks for coming on.
1: Thank you. Um, and just if I can, uh, a word from my lawyers who really put a lot of effort in this case, Ilan Bombach and Yuri Ronen. All right. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Um, you can read uh, Anat's piece on CJR, and it, which goes into a lot more detail than, we n- even when, than we've been able to do here today. Um, it's a terrific read, and it's sobering, um, but it's, it's important. Um, take a look at everything else we've got at CJR. There's a lot um, going on in the world, and um, we will see you next week.